Welcome to another episode of Axe of the Blood God, US Gamer's official RPG podcast. I'm your host, Kat Bailey. Joining me, as always, my lovely co-host, Nadia Oxford. Hello, Kat. I don't know about you, but I'm just feeling Friday in my bones today. Time to go home and play some more RPGs. Yes, that, that's a very long trip for me. I have to go from, like, the dining room table over to the couch. It's, uh, it's really stressful. Right now, there's somebody sitting in their car listening to this podcast, <laughs> absolutely despising you as they try to get to work in the middle of traffic. I know at least one of you listening is stuck on the 401. I'm really sorry. To those people, we salute you. We do. Thank you for listening to the podcast, and we hope that you we make your commute a little bit better. I really do. I really do. And uh, drive safe. And also, for these people, it's Monday. Like, So we're sitting here <laughs> talking on Friday. <laughs> And we're like, man, Friday, can't wait for the weekend. They're like, I hate you. <laughs> I hate you so much. And they turn it off and turn it into like classic rock or something. Well, don't turn us off. Instead, sit here and listen to us talk about video games for the next hour or so. Yes, uh, that's, that's a better alternative, I think. You can listen to Arnie Pie, Arnie in the Sky, or The Morning Zoo some other time. Hey, Kent, we got a real traffic thing going on here. Yeah, I love Arnie. What was it? No talk, no insight, no information for mindless chatter. Were your station? <laughs> my um, my uncle uh, is a radio host in Toronto, and he really loves the the robotic DJ. Oh, <laughs> don't praise the machine! <laughs> it's like that episode of The Simpsons with the uh, the lighthouse, and Homer is trying to get to the top of it because he thinks he's going to find the loneliest person in the world, his yeah. only friend, and it turns out to be some robot. <laughs> <laughs> that's right that was the yeah like that was uh when he's like standing in front of the light is that dad either that or batman's really let himself go that was the johnny cash episode i'm sure that our friends over at talking simpsons could tell us exactly what that episode is called and the production order and all of that stuff oh yeah they're way beyond my level <laughs> all right so <clears throat> some things that we're going to be talking about this week we're going to be talking about byleth coming to smash brothers we're going to talk about the new cinderwolves dlc in Fire Emblem Three Houses, and we're going to be talking about Tokyo Mirage Sessions Sharp FE, which is now officially out on the Nintendo Switch. We got all that port begging totally worked, Nadia. Yes, it did, and I'm glad it did because uh, this is a game that really shouldn't be overlooked if you're into the Persona sort of game. We did it. Okay, before we get to that, though, Axe of the Blood God is a U.S. Gamer podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever podcasts are sold. Follow me on Twitter at the underscore catbot. Nadia is at Nadia Oxford. We're doing a mailbag next week, I think. And if you want to, if you have a topic that you want to talk about, you want to vent about something, you have a question that you want to share with us, why don't you send us a note? Either leave a comment uh, in the comments page, send me an email at cat.bailey at usgamer dot net or dm me we will do our best to read as much mail as we can on the show and now we got a lot of feedback on the nintendo 64 episode from last week yeah uh people uh really kind of uh they, they were mostly very positive receptions but i did hear a little bit of like hey harvest moon 64 is an rpg too and yeah I'll, I'll debatable debatable yeah but god there was so little to really call an rpg i'll give it to you you can tell which consoles get the most uh, nostalgia because I think Nintendo 64 might be the most commented on, like maybe even more than Super Nintendo. So that might speak to the age range of our listeners. Yeah, it really does. And I think that's very interesting because um, N64, I love my N64, don't get me wrong, but I don't feel the same nostalgia for it as I do for 
my Super Nintendo, or interestingly, the PlayStation is probably what I'm most nostalgic for. But uh, yeah, there is a lot of love for the N64, and it's a it's a machine that kind of tried its best. I didn't tell you this, but during the episode, but I once I owned an, an N64 for about five minutes. What did you throw it out the window? <laughs> no, I found one for twenty dollars at the local GameSpot in like two thousand five. Oh, really? Did you? And you just returned it? Nope. I, well, I plugged it into my TV. I played around with Star Fox 64. I realized that the graphics, even then, were kind of too much of a step down from the PS2 and the GameCube. And I was like, ah, no, this isn't doing anything for me. And I think I either ended up selling it to somebody else or giving it away. Oh, really? Well, mm. it's not like you're wrong. I feel like a lot of the best N64 games were redone for the 3DS and DS. Like the was it the DS that had Star Fox or 3D? I think it was 3DS, and it was actually a very good port. I I love that version of Star Fox. It was Fox. a very good port, uh, and they even got the original voice actors back for it. But they re-recorded the lines just differently enough that it drove me crazy. <laughs> Do a barrel roll. Oh, yeah, but the way like Fox was saying things and also the Star Wolf things, I had gotten used to their a very particular inflection with all of their lines because I quoted them endlessly in high school. <laughs> <laughs> You'll be seeing your dad soon, Fox. Did everyone uh, like say, "Oh God, here comes Cat," and run away? Oh yes, exactly. <laughs> do a barrel roll. Do a barrel roll. Do a barrel. Where's everybody going? I thought I made great conversation at parties. I think so. Um, Nadia, you put out a newsletter every single Wednesday about Axel Blagov, which you can sign up for on the front page of the site. Um, it's a different topic, and we also include all of the relevant RPG news. Nadia, what was the topic of the newsletter this week? Well, I actually went a little bit retro because I was watching... You, you know, going retro? Yeah, what? I know. Like, just, Are you kidding me? I, I thought I'd break out of my comfort zone. But <laughs> um, basically, I was watching... Because of Games Done Quick, I was looking back at other RPG runs because I love RPG speedruns a whole lot. Um, I'm a huge fan of Puexel. So if you're listening for some reason, hi, good stuff. Uh, but I was watching a run of, I don't know if anyone remembers, an, uh, an SNES RPG called Evo. Evo Search for Eden. It was a game where you start off as a fish and you eat other animals and you gradually turn like, you know, amphibian, reptile, bird, finally going up to human and beyond. And you just kind of travel this, of course, it's a very fantasy-based timeline, but it's a lot of fun. It has like a really good soundtrack. And it was a fun game to watch uh, being speedrunned. And I was wondering, like a modern adaptation, I think that would be good, but it might lose something the way that sometimes like simple concepts become more, uh, kind of become the subject of remakes and something gets lost in the in the process. But There was a whole game that came out last year that was about evolution and it was bad. Which one was that? That was the one by the guy who did Assassin's Creed. Oh, God, that was, yeah, you're right, that was last year. Uh, that was, I actually previewed that. I went to Montreal for that. And uh, it had a lot of potential, but yeah, you're absolutely right, because a game like that is so ambitious that you're going to get so much jank. And Evo, by comparison, of course, it's a 2D game, it's much simpler to program for. And I feel like if someone just took that concept and kept what was special about it, kept the simplicity, which was everything in that game, but I feel like they would just add a whole bunch of features and, and a whole bunch of fat that it doesn't need just to kind of balloon it out to 30 hours or whatever. So 
Uh, I feel like Evo is a really special RPG, one of a kind, especially since the company that made it is out of business like a long time ago. So I, I just reminisced about, you know, being a fish. Reminiscing about being a fish. Swimming. Speaking of which, did you watch uh, Awesome Games Done Quick? I did. I'm actually catching up on a lot of the runs now. But yes, I did watch uh, several of the, the runs. Like, I don't know if you were. No, it was actually early in the morning. Uh, the UK team, the UK team, and us were watching the Celeste run because it was insane. Uh, it wasn't even it wasn't even Celeste. It was the the DLC that no one could finish, and this speedrunner was just blitzing it. I think there was a Fallout uh, run that also included uh, props. Yes, yes. I think uh, I don't remember. I think it was Eric who wrote about that. But yeah, that was great. He was kind of explaining through props how the how the skips worked. Oh, I watched a speedrun of, it was like an incentive that they met for Final Fantasy VI done in 20 minutes. It was the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen in my life. Yeah, so the article was, Fallout glitches can get tricky, so one speedrunner brought props to AGDQ. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was it. This is, it's a very fun event. I always look forward to GDQ, even though I can't always watch it when it's live, but I always make sure to go back and watch the, the really cool speedruns. Case in point, Tomato Angus reaches Fallout 4, and it comes time to get out of cryogenic slumber and venture into a new post-nuclear world. Usually this means taking an elevator, but elevators are slow. <laughs> While the game rolls through the usual cutscenes in the background, Tomato Angus busted out an actual prop to explain how, by falling through the floor and hitting into one of two invisible map boundaries, his character would be warped back up, skipping 40 seconds of elevator ride time. It's complex, but he breaks it down Jeff Goldblum in Jurassic Park style. <laughs> Well, they were so obsessed with what the scientists could do. You didn't think about what they should do. That's pretty cool. Though it makes some of these games really hard to watch. I was watching the Wind Waker uh, run, which was mostly Link in the water while the screen flashed a lot. It was actually giving me a headache. Yeah, some of the runs are a little bit hard to watch because they're so glitchy, which is it's incredible what they how they disassemble the games. But I know what you mean. There are some runs that I, that I just can't watch, like the... The Final Fantasy VI run, as incredible as it was, a whole lot of opening the menu and closing it again, so it made me kind of dizzy, and it was hard to tell what was going on exactly, but at one point there were like seven Terras. The best ones are the classic platformers like Mega Man, where yes. they just bust through it, and you're like, wow, look at them go. Wow, they're just playing it perfectly. Wow, they're not even getting hit. Yeah, those are my favorite ones by far, or the TAS ones when they break out Tazbot, like we watched a Mario 2 run the other night, and that was that was a lot of fun. That was super fun. And there was also the Final Fantasy VIII run that was much hyped. That was a little bit controversial. Yeah, um, I didn't get to watch that. I think I watched part of the ending, but yeah, that was a little bit controversial. There were two other people on the run, though, who were pretty cool. So the whole thing in, in general was a, was a lot of fun. Hooray for Final Fantasy VIII. <laughs> there you go. You got your rep, cat. <laughs> sure. Yeah, uh, Awesome Games Done Quick was a fun time. And there was another stream this week. As we already mentioned, and that was the Byleth being moved over to Smash Brothers. Smash Brothers isn't really our thing. Byleth in Smash, I mean, kind of is our thing, I suppose. Yeah, it's Byleth kind of in between. an RPG character, but uh, what do you think of the charge that there are way too many Fire Emblem characters in Smash Brothers, Nadia? I remember a time when, like, everyone was complaining about Dark Pit, and uh, Sakurai said, oh, do you make games? And... <laughs> <laughs> it was just such a Sakurai answer. Um, it, is, it is a little bit heavy on the Fire Emblem. I could see like uh, I'd want to keep like Krom and Lucina because like they're my they're two of my favorites. I'd probably get rid of Corin. I don't think anyone really likes Corin that much. The the funny thing about Corin is that she's way more interesting than Krom. 
like in game terms, because she has the extended uh, arms and everything, and she can turn into a dragon. That is kind of cool that she can turn into a dragon. And Lucina's just gender-swapped Marth. Yeah, but that's what makes her so cool. I love Lucina so much. I mean, admittedly, I like that, but she should probably just be a second uh, mere character for Marth. I do like how the um, video for the direct has a little animation where uh, Sothis calls out uh, Byleth for like, oh, too many sword fighters, eh? And that was pretty funny. <laughs> I thought Sothis should have been the character. I, you know what? I would have liked to see Sothis or I would have liked to see Rhea because she can turn into a silver dragon and that's just really cool. I was hoping for Claude with a bow, but I didn't that think we cool. were going to get it. Yeah, like, like I actually, I predicted Byleth and Smash like a week ago. <laughs> you did, yeah. You got the Vegas odds on that one. Um, yeah, it was. It was such a. I'm not mad about it. It was just a very sort of oh, okay moment. Like, okay, another Fire Emblem character. Okay, it's another. Is another protag instead of you know, as you say, Claude or or Edelgard would be fantastic. Yeah, I think that's my main problem is that there are actually interesting characters that you can put in for Smash, but they do it to service by just choosing the protagonist every single time. Exactly. Yeah, because uh, especially Byleth is kind of a, a cipher. Um, I'll always like him because he has my surname, but uh, yeah. I'll always think of Byleth as a girl, so it's weird to hear uh, of Byleth getting a male name. <laughs> yeah, it really is. Um, it's funny. I always default to the male characters when I play RPGs. I don't know why. Really? Yeah. Oh. I Almost never pick female. I only pick uh, women when I'm playing an RPG. Like, Which makes sense. Well, you know, how often do we get to have representation in games? But for some reason, I just always pick the male. I I feel alienated when I end up playing a guy in an RPG or another mm-hmm. game. That's why it took me forever to get into Witcher 3, because I was like, uh, I don't really understand Geralt. And then I put that wolf mask on him, and I'm like, okay, I understand Geralt a little bit better. <laughs> okay, I'm good. He's a furry now. <laughs> yes, no, that's a little bit how it was, honestly. <laughs> well, wolf masks are cool. Uh, which is why like, I kind of get it when people like start grumbling uh, that they don't... like they don't feel represented in a game or like mm-hmm. they can't identify they can't con- they can't click with a character that maybe doesn't look like them or whatever yeah uh mike in particular is really an expert at making himself in games but yeah um Even I with under- the glasses it's remarkable yeah he's he's pretty he's pretty talented and i i'm like this kind of person who puts like no effort at all into into like customization oh if there's character customization i will spend all of my time on it yeah, I'm not like that. I'm just like, oh, this tattoo looks cool. All right, I'm done. I spent quite a bit of money on my character in Pokemon Sword. Yeah, actually, you know what? I did uh, send, uh, spend quite a bit of time with Pokemon Sword because uh, I really like the fashions there. I saw an Arcanine shirt that was like, it took up all my money that, I, that my mom gave me at the start of the game, but I bought it. <laughs> and I was like, oh, shit, I need potions. Oh, God, my Pokemon are all dead. Oh, well. What's funny is I hate the garbage Pokemon, but I love the colors of the varsity jacket. So I ended up getting that jacket with a a cool hat and I think leggings with boots and uh, a a shirt. And I I like the look of it. I I look like I'm 21. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, Pokemon Go has a lot of uh, uh, customization with the outfits. And that's usually what I spend my gold coins on. It's like, oh, cool, we can dress up as Team Rocket. All right, now I have a Cubone mask. Yeah, we're friends in Pokemon uh, Go. I'm still wearing the, the Christmas sweater. <laughs> well, it is, it is like cold out, so it's kind of warm and cozy. 
Anyway, we got a little far afield from the topic. Uh, I think the point is is that Fire Emblem actually is a pretty rich franchise, and mm-hmm. it, this all this goes all the way back to the original Smash Brothers, where I feel like with Brawl, instead of putting in Ike, I wish they had put in Hector. Yeah, yeah, I, I definitely would have liked to seen Hector because Ike is again. He's another. He's I totally forgot he was there. He's a generic swords dude. Yeah, I mean, I like Ike. I. He, I think he might be my favorite Fire Emblem person, as it were. And putting him in Smash single-handedly uh, kind of popularized him, right? I, like, he is like a go-to character that I still use in Fire Emblem Heroes all the time. He has a whole lot of um, uh, different versions because everybody likes him from Smash. And then, like, you also have Robin, who's a magic user. That's okay. But you have characters on like Pegasus's, Pegasi, I guess. You have bow users, you have various mages, you have people on horseback. And I'm just kind of going, surely there's a way to work this way into, work these elements into Smash in ways that make sense. Yes, I would absolutely adore being able to fight with like a Pegasus rider or a Wyvern rider. Wouldn't it be cool if we had a, a Wyvern rider in that game? It would be, and it's like, I feel like Sakurai could definitely make it work if we got, like, Ridley and the Duck Hunt dog and whatnot. It would be a little bit strange, but it would be it would be really cool. I don't think Ridley should have been in Smash in the first place. I like Ridley. Ridley's my, he's my boy. I mean, I liked him as a big environmental hazard that you had to fight. When they shrunk him down, it was like, really? Uh, okay, if you insist. That's true. I do like how he's just huge in the games, the regular games. But fans are completely unreasonable. I'm looking at you, Smash Brothers fans, who want Geno. <laughs> I'll be honest. I, I think we're going to get Geno at some point. I got into a feud with Andre from Game Explain about this. Wow, Andre got mad? He doesn't get mad. Oh, he got mad. <laughs> <laughs> mad like, how Gino. dare you insult Geno? <laughs> well, a little I think puppet I that, that nobody remembers from uh, Mario 64 or That's Mario... Right. Whatever. Mario RPG, and you're like, nobody remembers Gino. I assure you, people remember Gino. I assure you, people remember Gino. I, I love you, Andre. You're cool. You're, he is. We're still friends, right? <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. Um, meanwhile, uh, in the actual RPG space, there was Three Houses DLC, which people are jokingly referring to as Three Houses in a Basement. <laughs> I love this concept. I can't wait for it. Yeah, I mean... We are basically getting the Slytherin house now. And yeah. I was telling you off air that we basically have chaotic evil Gryffindor. We have a uh, lawful, like lawful evil uh, Ravenclaw. We have cool Hufflepuff. And now we have basement Slytherin. I love how all the houses, like you kind of have to twist them to work in a Fire Emblem context. But Hufflepuff is always Hufflepuff. Yeah, well, I mean, the fact that my house is represented by the the coolest character in the entire game in Claude, like, makes me pretty dang happy, I gotta say. Yeah, go Hufflepuff. But they even have the one guy who's, like, peak Hufflepuff, who's kind of the larger guy. Uh, Yes, Raphael. Yeah, like, he he is so Hufflepuff, my God. Like, I just, I look at him and go, Hufflepuff, very sweet dude. Yeah, like, (laughs) I like him a lot. He's Um, like, where's the kitchen? (laughs) <laughs> well, right right next to the common room. That's where the Hufflepuff there you go. kitchens are. So yeah, it, it looks like it's going to be adding quite a bit, including potentially new characters um, and mm-hmm. a new storyline. And I'm excited. It's kind of like Pokemon. Uh, Nintendo's finally supporting its games. 
Yeah, um, they've always been pretty good about DLC for Fire Emblem, but uh, yeah, I'm pretty excited for this because I just love the idea of like basement emo kids on Black Pegasi. Like, oh man, I want to join you guys. Can I like join your house and you know? But then again, I like my Hufflepuff house, so we should be friends. I started a new a new run through three houses, but I didn't get extremely far. I think it was with uh, yeah, it, it was with the Hufflepuffs, the Golden Deer. <laughs> Yeah, I really, really want to at least run Dimitri's story because it just seems like it's so full of, like, heartache and, and tragedy and everything I love in anime bullshit. Dimitri is a cop is the meme. <laughs> Dimitri is a cop or Dimitri. Have, have you not heard this one? I forgot about it. Yeah, Dimitri is a cop. Oh, I love Dimitri. He tries his best. But uh, do we know when the Cinderwolves Treehouses DLC is actually coming out? Oh, I don't know if they announced it, but if they did, I totally blanked on that. I'm sure we'll find out soon I'm, enough. I'm up to the I'm really up to the minute on news today. I I may play it, but at the same time I also felt like I kind of got everything I wanted out of Three Houses. Three Houses is one of those games that I, I will come back to, but it's it's just, you know, not always a high priority as much as I loved it. I have too many other games to play. There's that. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and I, I guess the final notes I have here are Dragon Quest movie coming to Netflix. Yes. I said to my husband, uh, are you going to watch that with me? And he's like, sure, I'll watch it with you. So we're set. It's controversial, I'm told. Yeah, um, I won't say much, but the ending is wackadoo. It's the kind of ending that, like, if I had written it, I swear to God, if I had written it in grade two, I would have been sent back to me. And the teacher would have said no. <laughs> and because I have written endings like that. And... And thankfully, I, now thinking about it, my grades one, two, and three teachers were pretty good at n- nurturing my writing. So they told me, yeah, uh, don't do that. And I'm glad that's a good, that was a good lesson to learn. And the last note I have is, uh, there's a Charmander ASMR video if you want it. There is. There's a little video that's put up by the official uh, Pokemon company in Japan. Just a, a half an hour. It's a Charmander. It's really cute. It lights the campfire with its tail and then just kind of sits, sleeps around it while there's like a crackling sound. Ah, oh, that sounds lovely. It was kind of nice. All right. And on that nice note, let's head on to the Tokyo Mirage Session Sharp FE review. Don't go away. All right, Nadia, you reviewed Tokyo Mirage Shesson's Sharp FE for the site. You gave it a four out of five. Yes. Uh, you were broadly positive on it. So, uh, yeah, let's talk a little bit about Tokyo Mirage Sessions. Was it worth the wait? I think so. Um, it wasn't quite as grand and sweeping as Persona 5. So if you're looking for, like, you know, Persona 5 2.1 or, or like, you know, 1.0 or 2.0, rather, uh, you're not going to get that. It's, it's its own thing. It's a little smaller it is like, of course, you are taking a step back in a way because Persona 5 came out afterwards. But as a game on its own, like, it is very easy to appreciate. I think the battle system is quite excellent. Um, I think the sessions that make up the battle system is are a lot of fun. And I'm so glad that they added a feature which makes the animations instant because uh, basically sessions is kind of like watching the Knights of the Round animation from Final Fantasy VII. It just goes on and on and on because you have all your party members joining in. You have NPCs joining in. So I'm glad that you can kind of skip over that now. But it's still a lot of fun to just massacre enemies with your friends. This is very much the epitome of friends is everything sort of JRPG. 
Yeah, I, I think I've seen some people describe it as personal light, and yes. I would say that's not a f- unfair categorization. It has a pretty similar art style, but it at the same time la- lacks so much of what you know makes Persona go, like the the scheduling and the yes. uh, and things like that. Um, it's kind of a light, fun adventure, about thirty to forty hours, I want to say, in which you're. Uh, dungeon crawling and battling and battling is kind of the star of this game I want to say yeah um, it's, it's kind of like you you move over a map instead of going through actual towns and stuff you do go through Shibuya but it is one of those it is a little bit like four persona four and that you select your location from a map and go there which isn't bad because your real goal is to get inside the dungeons and and beat the hell out of some monsters and save your friends so yeah um very much its own thing, but at the same time, very persona. It's hard to describe. I, I said it was poutine in my review, which is, of course, a blending of ingredients that shouldn't work, but works quite well. Oh, so that was the poutine analogy. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, it was. Um, barring the kind of poutine you sometimes get up here where people put like weird like rainbow stuff in it and turn it all weird sorts of weird colors. We're talking about regular good poutine that's really nice and warm and comforting and good to eat during a hockey game. I was going to say, so it's gravy on soggy fries? Yeah, it's fantastic. It's not just gravy. It's it's uh, cheese curds, and the cheese curds melt with the gravy. And yeah, the fries are soggy, but who the hell cares? <laughs> I actually had the best poutine ever at Burning Man of all places. It, that's right. Yeah, that's incredible. I would have loved to try that. Yeah. Uh, of all the places to have really high-quality, solid poutine, I was not expecting it to be Burning Man. But uh, on that front, uh, I, I guess... It could be the soggy fries <laughs> of RPGs, but uh, it. I remember when it was first announced as SMT Crossfire Emblem, and right. nobody really knew what the heck to expect from it. I, I think a lot of us were kind of expecting a Persona strategy game. You're right, yeah. Um, yeah, that was 2014 or 15, and I feel like we were just starting to get really friendly with Fire Emblem thanks to Awakening, but... Persona and SMT, like, didn't have the impact it has now. And as I recall, they announced this game when the Wii was pretty much on its last gasp. And uh, I know that I was a little bit scornful of it because I was like, Nintendo, why are you doing this weird stuff when you could be doing a Metroid or something to really bring the Wii into the into the spotlight? But that was a stupid thing to say. I mean, it was Atlas who worked on it, right? And it was actually right. the... Director of Radiant Historia, if I cor- if I remember correctly. Oh, okay. That that would actually explain like something about the style seemed familiar to me, and I absolutely loved Radiant Historia. That's a great game for the 3DS, the the remake rather. Yeah, there was a lot of uh, concern about the stylings of the game among fans of the series, both both Persona or both SMT and Fire Emblem. Mm-hmm. But then uh, he put out a rather lengthy bro- blog explaining about how much he loved uh, Fire Emblem and everything that kind of assuaged a lot of, like, concerns about it and such. Yeah, um, I remember that now. And there is definitely a lot of love in this game uh, with the way... I'm not always a fan of the way they design the Fire Emblem characters, but, like, Virion is, like, this... Virion is is just this, like, amazing sort of silver robot with a top... with a sort of a floppy hat and uh, with a big rose on his chest. And it's like, well... I'm not a huge fan, but I can't say that's not Varian style. 
I don't get the whole Fire Emblem connection. Like, so they have recognizable characters from Shadow Dragon and I think Awakening, uh, plus some new characters, I think. Um, but they like are so not recognizable from their original versions. Like Tiki yeah. kind of sort of looks like Tiki from the game, but not really. So they might as well just be Personas. <laughs> Yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, Tiki is very recognizable, whereas um, some of the others, like I, there was even Crom doesn't look that much like Crom. No, he's kind of weird. He's got like glowing eyes, and his face is mostly obscured. Once he's in, once he's kind of bonded with Itsuke, who's the, the main hero of the game, he looks a lot more like Crom. Like he becomes, it's called the Carnage form, and that's where you see usually the the traces of the Fire Emblem character come out, like. Um, one of the character, one of the characters is named Tsubasa, and she's bonded with uh, one of the Pegasus Riders. I can't remember which one, but when she dons her Carnage form, she gets these little tiny, like a, a horse band, uh, sorry, a, a headband, these little tiny horse ears on it, and I, I just think that's amazing. But there's also, I can't remember his his he's had his name has been changed, Draug or Dor or Dogi or um, he's just like a big knight from the first game. I kind of like him too because he's bonded to an eleven year old, and. Uh, I think her name is Memori. So she, the game basically has you, sorry, the game basically has her hefting around this humongous axe, and she's the tank. So an enemy comes after you, and she, she'll run in front of the enemy and say, no, and like spread out her arms, and she'll take the damage. And it's one of the funniest things I've ever seen in my life. I, I just love it. How do you think the characters stack up to your average Persona or SMT game? Uh, they're definitely not as you're not looking at nearly as much character drama as you are with uh, Persona or SMT. The only SMT game I played was uh, Strange Journey, which which is actually much darker than uh, than uh, Tokyo Mirage Sessions. I-, I will say character interactions aren't quite as strong as they are in Persona 5, definitely. It's interesting because it's idol culture, and I am not into idol culture at all, but... I kind of like seeing the the workings behind the scenes. Like your mentors are all not just like your mentors in battle, but also your mentors teaching you how to sing, how to dance, and how to implement that all into your attacks. And I got really invested in that, even though when they kind of break out the song and dance, I'm just like, oh, okay, this is J-pop, all right. So, (laughs) 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 but I was fine with the characters. Like I'm not crazy over anyone, but they're all cool. I'd have a beer with them. You'd have a beer with them. Oh wait, they're all underage. So they're uh, so they can be president of the United States then. <laughs> well, I would actually elect Memori as the president of the United States. If she can swing an axe like that, she can like run a country. <laughs> uh, what do you think of the idol stylings? Uh, like I said, I'm really not into idols, but um, it's cute. It's it's flashy. It's they clearly put a lot of work into it, and I can see someone who's really into idols, like, really being impressed with what they did. Like, I bet Mike, who I think is into K-pop and J-pop, he could probably pick out some of the, like, more subtle touches that they really bothered with. But I'm really more in the game for the battles. Uh, thankfully, there's lots of that. And what do you think of the battle system? I like the battle system a lot. It's very interesting because, well, you know how Persona, uh, you really have to exploit your enemy's weaknesses, right? Uh that's a that's basically the whole point of the battle system in uh, TMS, because once you exploit a weakness, your your friends and the NPCs can all kind of jump in 
and administer their own beating. And if you do it right, if you link up enough characters, you can like clear a screen. But later in the game, it gets a little bit harder than that. But yeah, it's generally a very satisfying battle system. It's definitely one of my favorites. It reminded me a little bit of like how I how much I love battling in the uh, the Trails of Cold Steel series. Hmm. Uh, yeah, I like how flashy it is, and I like the music in Sharp Effie as well. Yeah, um, I still like Persona 5's music a lot better, but it's definitely a great sort of pop soundtrack. It's a very fun, put well-put-together package, and I'm glad that we have it on the Switch, and it's not just going to drift off into obscurity like many, many Wii games, Wii U games. So you mentioned that you find the menus pretty crowded, and it took you a while to learn how to navigate them without hitting the wrong buttons. So yeah, it's not, so it's still stylized, but it's not as, well, I, I was thought of Persona 5 as being really busy as well. Persona 5, I feel like, uh, is very, very extra, but I never had a problem navigating those menus, whereas they're obviously trying for a style with uh, TMS, but most of the time it works. Once in a while, it's just like, oh, God, that doesn't work at all. It's just too messy. And, um, yeah, so I also mentioned, like, the maps can be a bit of a nightmare on the rare occasion that you're allowed to go into an area like I had a hard time f- finding anything in Shibuya. Thankfully, you can quick warp to anything. But yeah, um, just the map was just garbage for that. Mm. And it's, is it like really hard? Because I've seen some people suggest that it is actually quite difficult. It is a hard game. Uh, the bosses will absolutely destroy you. There's actually one dungeon where um, I get up against a sub boss and it's this real jerk Pegasus rider who's really, really well armored. So everyone's like, all right, we got to take him down, blah, 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 blah. So we take him down. And I'm like, whoa, wow, that was a that was a tough battle. Then I get to the final boss of the area, who also has one of those Pegasus riders like flanking him along with other enemies. And he's a jerk as well. So wow. basically, that's what you're getting into. There is an easy mode. I'll be honest. I switch to it sometimes. And it still will give you a run for your money if you're playing it easy. But uh, yeah, it's, it's not the easiest RPG I've ever played. You got to love those RPGs that are like, Oh, here's a very difficult enemy. <laughs> well, yeah, you had to work your butt off to beat it. Ho ho ha ha. Now it's with a boss. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um I don't yeah, know. That was far, just a minion. I don't know how far you ever got in Final Fantasy Four, but the last boss sorry, the last stage before you beat the boss, the last floor, is just all boss enemies and you can't run away from them. My least favorite thing is when bosses become regular enemies. Yes. Yeah, it makes me feel kind of like I'm. I know it's supposed to make me feel more powerful, but I feel a little bit like, oh, I'm. I'm I've spent a lot of time on this game, haven't I? <laughs> well, it just gets repetitive at a certain point. It really does. Yeah, uh, like they do that in Dragon Quest Eleven a little bit because at, there's at least one boss. I think the Griffin. Yes. Who, like I think they start out as a boss and then later become a regular enemy. Yeah, Dragon Quest games do that a lot, where you have a character who's a, a boss enemy, and then shortly afterwards, you see them on the field. Yeah, so it's. I, I think that if there's going to be one place to make a game difficult, it's definitely bosses, and mm-hmm. I'm glad that Sharp Effie kind of continues the tradition of Persona having very, or SMT having very hard bosses. Yeah, because of course, Persona and SMT, like, they would show you no mercy. You really had to plan your strategy. And there is a certain element of strategy in uh, SMT, uh, sorry, TMS, because um, you can't just 
randomly spam a session. Like your friends have to have a an ability that links to you so that they will pull off that session. And it's hard to describe, but if you set up your if you optimize your party well, that's what it comes down to. You can do some serious damage. If you're not well optimized, well regular attacks are not going to do anything to, to even basic enemies like you will do chip damage yeah so it's very persona in that you have to exploit your enemy's weaknesses because either they'll just kick your butt yeah so but you know what they give you a ton of, of skill points which is like kind of like, like magic points so i never really felt like i was uh in trouble and that was part of what made me enjoy uh, Tokyo Mirage session so much is because I'm the kind of person who's very paranoid about using magic because oh no my magic points oh no my ethers I gotta hang on to all of them and you, for one thing in, in Tokyo Mirage sessions that's just not an option if you don't use your skills you will die and thankfully there's like a lot of warp points in, in dungeons so you can just warp back to your the studio and restore yourself uh, that actually ties into one other complaint I have about the game is that there is a lot of time spent on optimization and I know you love optimization, and I like a little bit of it myself, but you you learn skills through your weapons instead of, like, personas. And you learn them very quickly, which is nice, but it means that you always have to kind of go back to Tiki, forge more weapons, see what each weapon will give you, and then, like, you finish a, you finish a battle. Nearly every battle ends with, like, you learning a skill or a, a party member learning a skill, and you have to... Of course, you can only hold so many skills at once, so you have to go through your menu. Oh, what do you want to keep? What do you, what's going to go? So there is a lot of just stopping and fussing around in menus. And it's all for the greater good because it is kind of satisfying to grow, but it's still a bit of a, a, bit of a, a roadblock. So there's a little bit of customization overload. Very much so, yes. It reminds me of in Diablo 3 when I would be playing with um, three of my friends. And yes. we were playing... Uh, locally, and we would have to go, okay, my turn to get into the menu. Menu, 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 <laughs> menu. Got to sort through the, all of the inventory, doing all of the equipping. All of the... Meanwhile, everybody's on their phone, <laughs> messing around, waiting. It would take like 30 minutes to get through all of the different stuff. Uh, thankfully, it doesn't take that long. It's quite quick. It's just a matter of stopping after every battle and, uh, you know, choosing what stays and what goes. I like futzing in menus, though. It, it like I said, it is. It's just a little bit over overload, but it is satisfying because you do get to equip stronger weapons, and you know, hear the sound of like shing that you know indicates you've got that more powerful weapon, and it is worth the wait, really. I think the problem with uh, overloading people is that it takes away the impact of getting new stuff. Yeah, yeah. Like I guess I'm gonna re re go back to Dragon Quest Eleven again. Mm -hmm. that's the game that I'm playing at the moment. That game is quite stingy with its upgrades. It is, yes. It's, uh, it's not a game that hands out upgrades easily. But it's the, on the flip side, you're not always having to worry about it. It doesn't become onerous, I suppose. And when you actually get the upgrades, you're like, oh, I feel much more powerful now. Excellent. Do you ever use the Forge in Dragon Quest Eleven? I try, but I completely messed up the Forge the last time. You should learn the forge. The, the forge is a lot of fun because you can make some really great weapons and improve your own weapons. And uh, I know how to use the forge. Right. The problem was the last time I got enough to upgrade my main character's weapon. Uh huh. 
And it was kind of a complicated process and you needed a, a X number of skill points and you needed to hit all of the different bars and everything, right? Yes, yes. I used the special abilities without really thinking about it. Uh, and then I used up all of my skill points before I could finish the sword and I had forgotten to save. Oh no! So as a result, I lost all of the things that I needed to actually forge my weapon <laughs> And also, I don't have enough materials to make anything new at the moment. Right. Um, sometimes if there's a merchant at the camp, he'll he'll have something for you. But yeah, that's a that's a bummer. Yeah, the merchant will be at the camp, and I'll like go through it, and I'm often it'll be like, oh, this doesn't uh, produce enough of an upgrade to warrant the like ten thousand gold that I would have to spend on it. So like, I tend to be a little miserly with my money. <laughs> I think DQ eleven goes to the other extreme, actually. <laughs> Yeah, so basically not enough futzing around. Is there an RPG that really hits a sweet spot in terms of progression, in your opinion? It's funny. You mentioned Diablo 3, and since I wasn't playing with friends, and it was just on my own, it felt really good to play. It had that feedback loop that I really adored of just getting loot, equipping loot. Uh, and, of course, it was very fast for me because I wasn't with anyone. I think that the there are a lot of games that it's just like there's so much garbage loot everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Oh, man, I love garbage loot. So, <laughs> but you have to get, like, it just fills up your inventory. You have to get rid of it. Like, that's one of the big problems with Fallout is there's just so much trash everywhere. Yeah, but it feels so good when you get rid of it. But it feels so awesome when you get a particularly great weapon and you upgrade it and craft it and really spend a lot of time on it. And then you're like, oh, man, look at this thing. It shoots <laughs> lightning. Looks awesome. Look at me. It, I'm cool turns enemies into ash or blows them up it's great yeah it's um so yeah uh tokyo mirage sessions definitely it, it makes me feel satisfied but it doesn't it, it just also feels like a bit of a drag it's so, a strange yeah. feeling so the pace the pacing drags because of the way that the actual customization yeah. works yeah which is a bit of a shame um i will say dungeons are a step up from persona 4s because i felt like persona 4's dungeons were his weakest point uh like it, it's kind of a cross between four and five persona five in that each dungeon is themed there's no procedural generation for the most part and uh but it's there's you know stuff to interact with stuff to do some of the puzzles drive me up the wall there's one involving some lcd panels that gives me nightmares but uh yeah it's um dungeons are generally pretty fun but not nearly as impactful as persona fives what do you look for in a dungeon in an rpg uh, it's funny. When I see a dungeon, I'm just more interested in the fights than anything else. I'm not a huge puzzle person. Uh, I kind of like comforting puzzles like, oh, light the torch. Like, hey, look how smart I am. But um, when I look at something like, say, the sliding block puzzles in, in Zelda Twilight Princess, I'm just like, oh, God, shoot me in the head right now. It's not my jam whatsoever, as much as I love that mansion. Block puzzles are the worst. I I'm really, looking at really you, are. Vagrant Story. <laughs> Poor Vagrant Story. What a weird-ass game, but I loved it. And block puzzles are even worse when you have random encounters. Looking again uh, at you, Pokemon. God, who does that? Who even conceives of that? Pokemon. Apparently, Pokemon and many, many RPGs are like, okay, you got to solve this puzzle, and you got to get distracted every 30 seconds. Yeah, you're like sitting here going, okay, what if I try that? Uh, random battle. Here we go. That's why you got to have like a billion repels, but... When you run out of repels <laughs> and you're in the middle of the unknown dungeon and you are, or no, Victory Road. Yes. Yes. Holy crap. 
yeah, and your your stamina is going down so much. I guess what I'm looking for in a dungeon, I, I think Witcher 3 did dungeons pretty well, which is a variety of different kind of tile sets, some really interesting encounters, like combat encounters, uh, some good story beats, and just a sense that it's not a generic cut-and-paste dungeon is what I'm looking for. But uh, I would say that Persona has and SMT have never done that extremely well. The point is it's supposed to be kind of a grueling slog to get through, and it's less about the dungeon itself and more about the encounters. Yes, it's definitely about, like, there's always some boss who's corrupting someone in a Persona game, so you got to get there, and everything is just objects in your way and i will say for like persona 5 the dungeons tend to get pretty long and pretty repetitive even though they are very impressive looking and have some neat gimmicks yeah that's actually a, a thing that has made me a little bit slow to come back to persona 5 is that the dungeons are such a commitment yeah yeah they are but they're really cool it's such great music i know that okay so this strictly speaking isn't praise but maybe it's a preference of mine mm. In that I liked how fast I could knock out the dungeons in Persona 4 and then get back to the story. Yeah. Um, I'm not a huge fan of procedurally generated stuff, but I can see if you are. Like, I've see, I've heard people say how uh, you can speedrun Persona 4 quite easily because of the dungeons. Yeah, I would, I would blitz the dungeon. Mm-hmm. And then as soon as the dungeon was done, I was like, okay, great. Like, moving on. <laughs> yeah. And that is one thing I liked about Persona 4's dungeons. Everything that was there to see was there right up front, and you just could just run through it and get up to the top and be done with it. So what do you think of the improvements to Sharp Effie? That's harder for me to say because I didn't play the original. But I do know that, uh, I think it was Digital Foundry has put up videos of the low times, which low times on my Switch were pretty much non-existent. And Eric was telling me, Eric, who played the game, was saying something about how it used to be like 20 to 25 seconds transition from one place to another sometimes. So (laughs) I am so glad that that was fixed, if that's the case. Because that sounds awful. Yeah, the Wii U had some bad loading times, didn't it? Yeah, it was a just a system that was not developed very well. It it was different, but yeah. I don't know. Yeah. What, I don't know what the hardware, what was up with the hardware, and whether or not it was developed well or not. But I do know that the thing was slow. Yeah, it, it was very very slow. So they no load times that I really noticed. Uh, it it sometimes takes like a second between hitting the button and getting the menu, which. Persona games do that for some reason. It drives me crazy because they got to do a little transition to, to look cool, which often it often does look really cool. But uh, yeah, so it's not really a game with a lot of waiting in it. There is a new dungeon um, that kind of tells characters' stories as it goes on. And that's where you find a lot of the new costumes, which are really fun. Like you find Joker really, really quickly for Itsuke. Spoiler so... alert. <laughs> you say spoiler alert? Yes, I did. Because Joker is in it. Gasp. I mean, that was actually embargoed. We couldn't talk about it. Yeah, we couldn't talk about it, but lots of people talked about it anyway. So yeah. they sure did. <laughs> I love it when uh, common knowledge is embargoed. Yeah, yeah. That's a, kind of, that's a weird thing that happens sometimes. Yeah. But I think that when it comes to the quality of life improvements, I think the quick sessions are the best ad- addition. Yeah, the quick sessions from what I, like, If I can't even imagine sitting there through, like, a, a chain of, of 10 characters doing, like I said, like uh, the Knights of the Round thing in Final Fantasy VII. That would drive me crazy because sessions, there aren't they aren't something that happens once in a while. They're not a summon. They are essential to getting through the game. And to make you wait through them to that extent would be, would be inexcusable, frankly. 
I think that's why I bounced off uh, TMS on Wii U because it. I remember it feeling kind of slow in that regard. So it sounds like Switch picks up quite a bit. Yeah, Switch makes it a faster game, a sleeker game. There's more stuff to do. It's a great game to play in handheld, as you can imagine. Uh, there's lots of content. It's Yeah, it's about 30 hours for the main story, but there's tons of stuff you can do on the side because I think they included all the DLC. It's, it's a good uh, little RPG. I, I really enjoy it. It's a good way to start the game, uh, start, start the year, especially since, since there's like so many delays. <laughs> so go for it. I think that this is a weird hang up, but bear with me. Mm-hmm. I would probably play it on handheld, but when I'm playing an RPG on handheld, I usually am listening to a podcast. Yeah. But I don't want to listen to, I don't want to miss the great music in uh, TMS Sharp FE. But I also don't want to miss out on a podcast. <laughs> what do I do, Nadia? You can see the bind I'm in. <laughs> it's such a bind. Yeah, it's, um, I think at one point I finally switched to my own music when I was playing through a dungeon because it just, the battle theme got a little bit repetitive for my tastes. Hmm. Okay, so final thoughts on TMS Sharp FE. Ultimately, was it worth the wait? Uh, if you bought it before, do you think it's worth picking up again? If you haven't played it before, I mean, there's so many RPGs on the Switch. Uh, does it? Is it like the one that you're like, oh yeah, get this one? Uh, like I said, it's the start of the year, and there's uh, not a lot going on until a little bit later in the spring. Uh, it kind of reminds me of Octopath Traveler in that way, in that you'll get a, a really good RPG that's different, and uh, it'll be good to enjoy during these kind of the droughty time that we're going through. I would say it is worth the money. I know we have a lot of RPGs on the Switch, but not too many like this. We certainly don't have too many, too much in the way of Persona-type RPGs on the Switch. Yeah, I think it's a little bit of your preference. Um, exactly. If you want a extremely, uh, shall I say, conservative and traditional JRPG on Switch, well, Dragon Quest Eleven is right there. Mm. And if you want something a lot flashier, a lot poppier, a lot more colorful, with fun music, and it's like anime is all get out, well, here's TMS uh, Sharp FE. And if you want something more Ghibli-esque, mm-hmm. well, um, you got Nino Kuni. So it, it seems like there are like RPGs to fit every taste. I mean, even, you know, Divinity Original Sin 2 is on the Switch. Yeah, that's is- right. I really got to get to that. Holy crap. Yeah, like, and so that's an awesome thing to have that on there as well. And Diablo three, so Diablo three is great. Yeah. So chances are, no matter kind of what you want, uh, going back to last year, I mean, Tales of Vesperia came out last year. If oh you'll crap! Recall. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Last year was the year of the Switch port. It really was, but like I said, for uh, TMS, it you, you you if you put all those games on shelves, TMS is on its own shelf because again. It's quite Persona, like quite SMT, like not not exactly by any means, but there is a certain flavor to Atlas games, and this subscribes to that flavor, and it's nothing quite like it on the Switch yet. It also kind of closes the book on RPG ports from the Wii U outside of maybe Xenoblade Chronicles X, if you're into that kind of thing. Yeah, um, I, I wouldn't mind Xenoblade Chronicles X. It's funny, a, a couple of years ago I interviewed the developers, and I said, hey... How about Xenoblade Chronicles X on the Switch? And they laughed and said, can't really do it. I said, why not? Is the Switch not powerful enough? It's like, no, money. <laughs> money, money. Yeah, that's money, the money. problem is that there are some of these games that 
uh, developers clearly want to bring over, but they yeah. just can't make the business case for it. No, they can't. Like, especially Xenoblade Chronicles, let's face it, the first one's coming as a remaster. Uh, we already have two in the DLC, which is excellent. So a game like that, that huge, because Xenoblade Chronicles X is absolutely ginormous, that would take a lot of work to port, especially a game that's so reliant, that was so reliant on the second screen on the on the Wii U for maps and whatnot. I think it would be a pretty tough sell uh, to put Xenoblade Chronicles X because one of the reasons they went back to the more story-driven approach with Xenoblade Chronicles 2 was that uh, people didn't particularly care for the more exploration-driven Xenoblade Chronicles X. I count myself as among them because I thought the world was pretty boring and the fetch quests were even more boring. I will admit that Xenoblade Chronicles X it was not my favorite. I feel like it was, as you said, a more generic RPG, whereas the reason I love Xenoblade Chronicles is because, God, you have these land masses that are just living masses of rock that move and live and breathe and is really interesting. In Xenoblade Chronicles uh, 2, there's uh, a, a kingdom on a titan that's dying, and they're always in danger, like saying, we have to do something about this, but what do we do? Do we evacuate? Can we evacuate? So they have their politics going on on top of this monster that's dying. So I just found that like stuff like that makes a really, really interesting dynamic that was missing from Xenoblade Chronicles X, which is just, it's a big world, but it's just a world. I'm curious if there are if there are people listening to this who are really into Xenoblade Chronicles X, because I know it has its defenders. It definitely has its defenders. It has its fans, for sure. Yeah, so they're probably being real mad, sitting in traffic on the 404, <laughs> heading to work. Sorry, going, First you're like, first you remind me that it's the Monday. Now you're dissing my favorite game on the Wii U. I gotta go into work. I hate you. I hate this podcast, but I, <laughs> I also love it. Zero stars. I can't. I can't stop listening. Five stars. <laughs> we are don't, hypnotic. Don't give us bad reviews. It makes Please us don't. sad. Yeah, don't give us bad reviews. I don't hate Xenoblade Chronicles X. I just don't think it's a great no, fit no, right now. No, no, just throw your body in front of it. No, <laughs> no. I didn't mean it. <laughs> uh, maybe someday it'll come to the Switch, but um, frankly, I'm looking more forward to Xenoblade Chronicles Three. Whenever yeah, I'm looking forward more to new RPGs, I think, yeah. rather than ports at this point. I think we got all the ports that we kind of need. Yeah, I think we can give ports a rest just for a little bit. But don't give Tokyo Mirage Sessions, Sharp Effie, uh, uh, a rest. I, I think it's totes worth picking up if you are looking for a good, uh, solid, fun, colorful RPG that's a relatively low impact, is fun to play on handheld features plenty of improvements over the wii u version and uh i don't know just has a certain flavor and uh supposedly this was supposed to be the beginning to be the beginning of various uh crossovers uh Uh, it would be kind of fun if they kept going with uh, this concept but with different nintendo franchises i agree oh my god can you imagine like shin megami tensei crossed with mario that would be absolutely bonkers smt crossed with advanced force that would be oh my god like you're summoning crap. tanks summoning tanks that are like dressed up as pop idols that would be nuts i i learned while researching for this episode that apparently there was supposed to be a pokemon crossover with fire emblem ah oh, damn i mean i and actually i was like oh my god a tactics rpg where you're recruiting pokemon instead of characters they kind of had that with the Nobunaga's Ambition spin-off. Yeah, but, it's, but that wasn't good. 
it was okay. I liked the how like Nobunaga was this real hot anime guy with a but black fire emblem. I want fire emblem, but Pokemon, <laughs> not Nobunaga's ambition, but Pokemon. <laughs> In Japan, everything has to be Nobunaga's ambition at least once. Okay, Nadia, last week we talked about the Nintendo 64 for the console RPG Quest. And uh, a lot of people had feedback on this particular episode. Mm -hmm. Uh, Lots of people have fond memories of it, very strong opinions about the Nintendo 64. It certainly is a console that, I mean, you're not going to not have opinion on it. You're going to have, you're going to have, you think something about it, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you have opinions about, you have hot takes about N64. Everyone does deep in their hearts. I got a few uh, I got a few notes along this line, but this one was just today at Impulse by Nature. I hate to be that guy, but you did forget about Aiden Chronicles on N64, which is fair because it was forgotten about well before it was released on an already forgotten console. <laughs> Aww. So yeah, Aiden Chronicles. It's not so much that I forgot about it. It was actually in my notes. I just didn't get to it because I didn't care that much. Oh no. <laughs> It was like, it was on the list, but it just never came up, which uh, is about right for a game that has like a 50 on Metacritic or there, thereabouts. It came, out in, it came out in 2001, and by the way, it's a Canadian game, Nadia. Oh, who made it? Uh, H2O Interactive. Really? I don't think I know them. Yes. yes. Uh, it was actually supposed to be a fairly ambitious RPG. Hmm. Uh they hired Chris Klug of TSR's uh, Dragon Quest as oh, cool. the scriptwriter and lead designer for the project, and he devised a story built around the concept of a magical true name. And uh, unfortunately, the game itself didn't quite to get come together. As the escapist yeah. ended up saying, even if the combat is driven by some decent ideas, it's ultimately just a bore. When your party is full and there are multiple enemies to contend with, individual fights can last several minutes apiece. Add that to enemies that can be hard to see at times in the world map, and you'll frequently find yourself caught in lengthy battles that are hard to avoid. This wouldn't be so bad if the real-time movement was actually any fun. By my experience, was that it was more snore-inducing than exciting. I'm not joking here either. I legitimately fell asleep in the middle of a battle at one point. <laughs> Granted, I might have already been on a bit of the dozy side, but usually if the game's good, that's not an issue. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's like a lot of N64 games of the time. It's not exactly a looker, uh, but it was trying to be super, I guess it was trying to be pretty ambitious and push the N64 to its absolute limits. It was just kind of too little too late because the PS2 was firmly established at this point. Yeah, I was just thinking that it sounds like one of those projects where someone comes up with it pretty early in the system's life and it just, it gets really troubled and it has like problems and it gets delayed, delayed, delayed. And by the time it comes out, it's kind of half-baked and looks terrible against the new generations of consoles that have been established by that point. But yes, it was an RPG, I guess. <laughs> well, good for it. I, I, I genuinely mean that because it, could, it clearly wasn't easy putting a traditional turn-based game on the N64. All right. Halfpenny says, Ogre six, Battle 64 deserves a moment, if you please. The story was actually very political, and the battle system was the same as Ogre Battle March of the Black Queen. Those two aspects were, are remarkable enough in that they are very high quality, but what sets it apart is that it's one of the very early console games. 
where not only dialogue choices, but your actions on the battlefield have repercussions that reverberate through both the narrative and the gameplay. For example, the mission where you must conquer a region, but the enemy had conscripted the local populace against their will to fight you. There's the slightest of hints that you don't want to fight them, but might have to. But other than that, there's no obvious way to avoid conflict. However, if you manage to avoid battle with them, sacrificing the XP and alignment points gained, you can finish the mission and the narrative will shift accordingly. The game is so often dismissed as, yeah, the N64 had no RPGs, except Quest 64 and <laughs> Ogre Battle, and that is a disservice to this incredible game. It stands up to the best the PSX had and is a top 10 JRPG for me. Sorry for the thread, and thank you for the great show. Yeah. Well, that's nice. That's, that's fair. Uh, Saladin says, I was incredibly pleased and confused when I heard the intro to Gundam Wing during the podcast. Mm. It makes sense <laughs> until I heard Super Robot Wars. Nice selection, though. Yeah, I was looking through like various musical clips, um, and I found Super Robot Wars '64, and uh, it had Gundam Wing, and so I kind of liked having Gundam Wing as in the N64 sound chip. Which, by the way, is really not a good sound chip. No, it was it was pretty crummy. Uh, but did you see? I put on the Slack a little bit a little while ago a screenshot of a like a Gundam Wing fan site from like 1990 something, and it's like has this real chibi picture of Catra there hard eyes and everything and it's like hi welcome to my catra shrine and god it was so 90s i loved it <laughs> uh nice gun night neon says quest 64 was another thing entirely though even as a little kid i didn't outright love the game in the way i love super mario 64 star fox or other heavy hitters of the time but i was into it for being a competent fantasy adventure which as a growing nerd i loved i lived for fantasy drivel I don't think anybody should play Quest 64 today. It would be a waste of time. <laughs> the gameplay is pretty basic, and the plot doesn't really do anything ambitious. But when people talk about how atrocious it was, I feel like it was an unfair reaction. It was fine. The quintessential 5 out of 10 game of its era. I didn't do much wrong, but it didn't stand out in a meaningful way. It had all the goofy fantasy trappings to capture my baby imagination at the time, and the lead kid's goofy haircut resonated with me and my goofy haircuts. <laughs> So basically, the quintessential 10 out of 10 game. I will near no argument to the contrary. I think <laughs> like the problem those... with Quest 64 was that the N64 had such a limited library at the time, and people were desperate for literally anything, and so Quest 64 had an unfair spotlight on it. Yeah, I mean, just listening to the episode we did, it's like, well, what was on the N64? Uh, Quest 64. And of course, it's not quite true. There was a little bit there in terms of RPGs, but it, it, Quest 64 has a target on its back. And as you say, a goofy haircut. It looks like, you know, his mom put a bowl on his head and did the thing with the scissors. Uh, Johnny Boy of 407, I can absolutely confirm that Quest 64 is a smoldering dumpster fire. <laughs> <laughs> One good breath of air will send that baby roaring. Uberus says, you know, I'll disagree that the N64 was visually looked as bad back in the day. I remember very vividly being impressed by the graphics and how much they were much less muddy than those on the PS1 and Saturn. The common view of folks at my school. In retrospect, yeah, it looks pretty bad, but so do its competitors, just in slightly different ways. Super Robots War Spirits is a 2D fighting game, by the way, and it's completely bonkers. It's some quality kusuge. Uh, when it comes to the actual graphics, it depended on the game. Like, it really did. I remember Wave Race 64 and Mario Kart 64 and Mario 64 and those early games by Nintendo looking really good. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I remember Goldeneye looking really good. Yeah, um, I think I said it, but anything by Nintendo or Rare who really knew the hardware generally looked very good. Star uh, Fox 64 looked f awesome. 
Star Fox 64 looked very good. And I remember, yes, Wave Race, the there was a big deal made out of the water effects, which were actually very good. Yeah, the water looked awesome back then, didn't it? Yeah, it did. And same with Pilot Wing 64. Like, mm. even though the frame rate was like, you know, 10 frames per second, you could fly up and, and see the whole island. And that was that was incredible. That was not something you could really see on, like, the PlayStation. So it had its strengths by all means. But if you didn't know how to exploit those strengths as a developer, uh, you were going to get a mud fest. Yeah, once you got outside the, the main games and you got into those really bad third-party games, ooh, it started to get bad, didn't it? It did. It looked really bad. But And yeah, you're absolutely right. The PlayStation didn't really have much in the way of 3D lookers either. But I feel like the colors were used more effectively. Just just uh, games seem to stand out more. I, I can't really explain it. Sammy J9, Paper Mario is an excellent game. Other than that, uh, yeah, <laughs> I got nothing. It is an excellent game, I agree. The Nintendo RPG drought of the N64 GameCube era was legendary. It's why so very few RPGs on the N64 and beyond got so much fanfare. There just wasn't much there. Sometimes the fanfare led to massive disappointment, like with Quest 64, and sometimes it more or less delivered Tales of Symphonia, but overall Mm -hmm. it was a very dark time for Nintendo RPG fans. It really was. It was a dark time for Nintendo in general, I think, barring a few bright spots. Yes. All right. So thanks to everybody who commented on this episode. Um, Got a lot of nice notes and a lot of nice emails and comments and tweets. People were really into hearing about the N64 and that old Nintendo 64 nostalgia. Yeah. um, I'm actually very impressed. Thank you, everyone. Uh, I didn't know the N64 was so beloved. Like, I didn't know it, it sparked such a reaction in really? people, but I'm glad it does. No, I, I, like I said, I love my N64, but it just kind of occupies a, a back spot in my mind versus the PlayStation or the, or the SNES. You saw that one kid completely lose his <laughs> mind, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, but how did he feel on Boxing Day? Was he like, oh, <laughs> yay, N64? I'm sure that he was very excited on Boxing Day. It's. It was like, okay, I was excited about my N64 until I really started to crave RPGs. And I'm like, yeah, I don't think RPGs are coming to this system. And then I had to convince my mother to let me buy a PlayStation. But she didn't want me to have a PlayStation because she was in the mindset that one console is the same as the next. And I had to explain, no, mom, this one has FMVs. This one can't fit FMVs. I need it. I need my RPGs, please. As I've said before, I was an Uber Nintendo fangirl in mid, mid school, so I would come up with excuses for nintendo constantly same yeah and then i got a playstation and played metal gear solid and final fantasy 7 for the first time and i was like oh (laughs) (laughs) oh no okay (laughs) and that flipped me pretty hard on the nintendo 64 but then again when the next generation came around and the gamecube came out i was right back at it being an uber nintendo fangirl like defending the gamecube to the hilt Yeah, I remember people making fun of the lunchbox design. I was like, it's good. No, it wasn't very good. I thought the Nintendo GameCube was cool. (laughs) Why does it have a handle? I mean, because, I mean, I carried it. I I literally carried that thing by its handle. I thought it was great. What did you put your lunch in it? (laughs) No, I took it over to my friend's house. Okay, that's fair. We play Smash Brothers. All right, so I'll, I'll let the handle pass then. Yeah, exactly. Well, we'll get to the Nintendo GameCube soon enough. Uh, next week, we're going to do a mailbag and mm-hmm. catch up with even more responses from you guys and uh, talk about various other things, uh, lots of different subjects. So if you want to contribute to that, send me an email at cat.bailey at usgamer.net. Nadia, 
is on Twitter at Nadia Oxford, and I'm on Twitter at the underscore catbot. You should subscribe to our newsletter, which comes out every single Wednesday. And of course, Blood God itself comes out every single Monday, and it's on the podcatcher of your choice. And by the way, if you enjoy the podcast, do us a favor and leave us a review uh, on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever. We always enjoy hearing feedback from you guys, um, even if it's negative. But if it's negative, just send me a note. Don't leave the actual bad review. I just kind of appreciate it. <laughs> I feel like you've been protecting me from all this negative feedback I haven't seen. Uh, I mean, just go look at our reviews. It's right there on iTunes sometime. Nadia sucks. Kill her. Oh, no. They love you, Nadia. <laughs> oh, that's nice. And I love I- you, I'd too. like to live. Ah, I love you, too, Kat. And on that note, thanks for listening to everybody. We'll be back next week. And as always, for Nadia and myself, we'll see you again next time. And until then, happy adventuring. <laughs>